Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Cardio Nerds, we are so excited to be back today with a stellar group of fellows and colleagues from the Brigham Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Super excited to learn from Drs. Monica Yanamandala, Simin Lee, and Maria Pabon. Guys, such an honor to welcome you to the show. Really excited to launch into our discussion. But first, tell the audience who you are. My name is Simin Lee. I am originally from Boston, actually. I was born and raised here. I did my residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital as well. And I'm probably headed for prevention within cardiology. I'm very interested in behavior change and healthcare delivery innovation. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Monica Yanamandala. I'm one of the second year Brigham Fellows, and I am from California, all over the place, but did my residency at Montefiore in the Bronx and am interested in a career in basic science. And thank you also so much for having us. I am Ana Maria Pavon from Colombia, the country. I went to med school in Colombia and then I did my residency at Cornell. I stayed an extra year to do a chief year and now I'm doing my first year of cardiology fellowship here at the Brigham. I'm very excited to be here as well. Monica, Samin, Maria, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so excited to have you and also visit you in Boston. I've got so many fond memories of just like wandering aimlessly around Boston, the parks, the streets, the history. It was an amazing place. I crushed the tea. It was like my first time using public transportation. <laughs> I was really nervous, but they had this like cool app at the time that guided me. I also had to call my wife a lot to ask for directions. But guys, this is such a treat take us to your favorite Boston locale so we can talk about some amazing cardiology. Absolutely. So Monica, Maria, and I are sitting on a dock along the Charles River Esplanade, which is a beautiful park on the Boston side of the Charles River. I grew up here, so I'm a little bit biased, but this is definitely one of our program's favorite spots in Boston. We actually recently had a socially distanced picnic here to welcome the new first-year fellows, which was so fun. We had frisbee, music, some were sailing, great food, great sunset. It's really close to everything. 
restaurants in Boston and Cambridge, bars, the sites, shopping, hospitals, you name it. And there's some really amazing concerts and fireworks there during the holidays. It's a super special place. We love it. Boston, I was surprised to find coming from New York, is such a beautiful outdoor space. I live right next to the Harvard Arboretum, and I just absolutely love going for a run there, walking around. It's really one of the greenest cities I've ever seen, and I've seen San Francisco, Chicago, Newport Beach, so all over. But Boston is really fantastic in that way. But I would just not emphasize the food. But I'd still have to go back for my New York fix to get a, a crispy dosa. A <laughs> crispy dosa. <laughs> I, I do love crispy dosas. But tonight we are enjoying a socially distanced picnic, hanging out at the Esplanade, gazing across the Charles River. And we're going to dive into some amazing cardiology. So guys, let's do it. What do we have today? I have an incredible case to share with you guys. Somebody I took care of in the CCU the other night, and I'm just dying to hear what you think and to talk about it. So listen to this. We got this guy, very young guy, 44 years old, with a history of HIV and this idiopathic thoracic aortic aneurysm with related severe AI that he got repaired 10 years ago with a bioprosthetic freestyle root and valve who came in with acute onset, severe shortness of breath, and presyncope. The story was very interesting. He told us that he was out walking his dogs, and then suddenly, in a moment, became extremely lightheaded and felt like he was going to pass out. He went inside his house and tried to go upstairs, but had a really hard time. He just had severe shortness of breath. He was diaphoretic. He was weak. And he had really never felt this way before, so he came right on in. It turned out when we met him that there was actually more to the story. He had been fatigued for about a month. He had a flu-like illness three weeks prior to presentation, during which he had fevers to 101.3, myalgias, malaise. Interestingly, what he told us is that his viral load, which is almost always undetectable except during little illnesses like winter colds, became briefly detectable during this time, even though he hadn't missed a dose of his antiretrovirals and was very adherent. No sick contacts, no travel, no exposures. We asked him about all of that. And he hadn't had any other infections, but it had this dental cavity that he was waiting to have filled. Wow, Simi. It seems like he must have been 30 or so when he had his valve fixed. What was going on with his valve and with his aorta? Yeah, the aneurysm history was very interesting. He told us that he was diagnosed at age 30 after one of his doctors picked up a murmur on exam. He got an echo to follow that up, and that revealed an ascending aortic aneurysm of 5.2 centimeters on the transthoracic echo, which also showed severe AI at the time that was asymptomatic and a depressed ejection fraction to 45%. Obviously, that triggered a whole evaluation, and they asked him all the right questions. He had no family history of aortic diseases, dissection, sudden death. They even ordered genetic testing around the time of this workup. We don't have the details of that, but it was reportedly negative. He got some more imaging, including a CT, and it actually showed the aneurysm was closer to seven centimeters at 30 years old. So he got referred to surgery and ultimately underwent an operation in 2010 in which he got a Medtronic freestyle root, which I didn't know about, but it's 
apparently a porcine aortic root that includes a stentless bioprosthetic aortic valve. Very appealing at the time because apparently it has smoother flow characteristics as opposed to the more turbulent flow that happens when prosthetic valves have struts disrupting flow. The other thing that was appealing about this is that you could fit a very large sized valve in there because you wouldn't be constrained by the patient's native aortic root size. Now, you guys may be wondering, why did this 30-year-old man get a bioprosthetic valve and root? And it's a great question. It was one of the first questions we had for him. And he was very forthcoming about it. He said that the recommendation from his doctors was for a mechanical valve given his age, but that the patient himself did not think that he could live with hearing the clicking and was very nervous about a life on anticoagulation. So after multiple discussions, he ended up electing to have a bioprosthetic valve and root. And he did great after surgery. He had EF recovery, his AI resolved, and he was able to live a completely normal life. I just want to say that we had this whole conversation on an earlier episode about AI versus AR. And at that time, we, we settled on AR because Dan said AI reminds him of artificial intelligence. But it's nice to hear AI because that's what I've heard used a lot. I can I can say it again. It's <laughs> AR. Sorry. We can try both. This is this is balance. You know the the yin and the yang. We need both. This is great. Right. That's right. Yeah. And on that note, is it malaise or malaise? <laughs> it. De- I guess it depends on whether. I don't know. Should I go back and say malaise? Malaise. No, no, no. This is a preference thing. I actually think that malaise sounded very sophisticated. It did. It sounded very sophisticated. It's like Target instead of Target. (laughs) (laughs) That's just depressing. (laughs) So did did, did we ever figure out what the ideology of his aneurysm was? Because it's a little bizarre. It is bizarre. Yeah. It was thought to be idiopathic after all of that workup. The only addition I'll make is just thinking about him, who he is, what his risk factors are. And SCDs, of course, co-segregate together because they share the same risk factor of potential unsafe sexual practices. And now, you know, of course, there's nosocomial exposure and other ways of contracting HIV. But for instance, if he had syphilis, a great episode we had earlier in the series was syphilitic irrititis with both primary and secondary aortic regurgitation. And so I would think about that as well, but I'm sure that he had a full workup. But what is your approach to aerotopathies in general? Thoracic aortic aneurysms and aerotopathies are really tough because unlike our standard heart failure patients that we see where we see them progress over time, aerotopathies can be silent for a long time and really can just be diagnosed incidentally during the clinically silent phase until they become a problem or acutely present like with a very dramatic dissection or with symptoms of heart failure due to valvular dysfunction like in this patient's case. I think thinking about who gets thoracic aortic aneurysms like we're talking about in this case is interesting because it falls into two major categories. In one situation where wall stress is increased like in hypertension, cocaine use, atherosclerosis, and smoking, and then other conditions that result in degeneration of the medial layer of the aorta and often in a really syndromic manner. And typically in younger patients, like our patient with connective tissue diseases, Marfan's, Lloyd-Steed syndrome, bicuspid aortic valve or Turner syndrome. 
And often we still just have so much to learn about these patients and only about 15 to 20 percent of patients with thoracic aortic aneurysm or thoracic diseases are often found to have any inheritable pathogenic gene like FBN1 for Marfan syndrome or SMAD3 for Lewy-Steed syndrome. And if you have a syndromic presentation, then maybe you bump up that probability of detecting a condition up to 25%. But even so, it reflects how much more we have to learn. And a lot of other identified diseases, three in one, in fact, on that genetic panel that you might get back are really of unclear significance. And so you don't know what to do with that information. Do you tell family members? Do you screen family members for that condition? How do you approach it? And that's a really big kind of black box that we're still trying to sort out for a lot of these genes. Like you mentioned, Asimi, the patient had genetic testing done, but also these tests have changed over the past decade. And it's really hard to know what was tested, what was not tested at the time. But one thing that really caught my interest was his solitary kidney. And that, if, for example, if he were a woman and had some kind of hypogonadism, in addition to this aortic aneurysm, you'd really want to think about Turner syndrome. And the kind of counterpart to that is Noonan syndrome, which is caused by mutations that alter the RAS MAP kinase pathway. And it raises the possibility that given his aortic aneurysm, with solitary kidney, could he have Noonan syndrome? But you didn't mention any syndromic features, but that would be one interesting question to potentially explore in him. Yeah, that was amazing. And I'm learning so much. I hadn't really thought about Noonan syndrome and in terms of approach to aortopathies. I've got just a, a couple of comments. One is just a small morsel of a pearl that generally speaking, as you said, aortopathies can be either degenerative from some sort of acquired insult, or it can be genetic or familial. And a natural anatomic landmark is to think about the ligamentum arteriosum. In all comers, generally, aneurysms or aortopathies distal to the ligamentum arteriosum are more likely to be degenerative, like the traditional atherosclerotic risk factors, whereas aneurysms or aortopathies proximal to the ligamentum arteriosum are more likely to be of genetic origin, unless it's an arteritis from syphilis or takayasu. And so the familial or a genetic aortopathy that isn't syndromic is a whole family of aortopathies called the FTAADs, or the familial thoracic aortic aneurysms and dissections, where they are familial, oftentimes inherited in autosomal dominant ways, most commonly the ACT-A2 mutation, but there are others that are defined, but don't really essentially carry along these morphologic syndromic features of things like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos or Lois Dietz, for instance. Uh, so that's one point. And the second point is, you know, we could talk about aortopathies forever. There is such a rich and deep topic. And I'm just reminded actually by Dan from a review that there is no disease more conducive to clinical humility than aneurysm of the aorta from yours truly, William Osler. <laughs> and I feel humiliated all the time. <laughs> that is so excellent. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, you know, the aorta from a diagnostic perspective, as we are doing here and demonstrating here, when you have an aortopathy, you really need to think outside of the box. You need to basically think about what's going on with this entire person. Is it linked to a genetic thing? Is there other vascular beds that are at risk? Or are there other things that are basically affected, say, by cuspid aortic valve, go along with uh, aneurysm? So even though there's no direct easily conceivable pathophysiologic connection, you have to be thinking about these things. So really a fascinating topic. But it sounds like that was all what got him into the healthcare system, especially from the cardiovascular perspective. But I'm really excited to hear what brought him in now. 
Yeah. So as we were saying, it was just this moment. He was just with his dogs walking outside and then developed very acute onset lightheadedness. Felt like he was going to pass out, went back inside, but barely could get up the stairs because he was so short of breath, diaphoretic and weak. And so what he told us was that he hadn't been feeling totally normal until that moment. For the three weeks prior to that day, he had been having the fatigue, the malaise, the fevers to 101.3. So all of this together, really that day that he developed the lightheadedness and shortness of breath, those were the symptoms that prompted him to come in. And when we first met him, he was so young, he had this history of HIV. Just hearing the history and knowing about his risk factors, we tried to keep a really open mind and had a very broad differential diagnosis just at the beginning. One of the first things we were thinking about was coronary disease and ACS, acute coronary syndrome. And that's because patients with HIV have a higher risk of accelerated atherosclerotic disease and MI. They have higher rates of the traditional risk factors that we think about a lot in cardiology. But even when those risk factors are not at play or very well controlled, they still have higher rates of cardiovascular events, indicating that there may be something going on with HIV itself and the cardiovascular system. But even when HIV itself is very well treated, well controlled, undetectable viral loads, these patients still have higher rates of cardiovascular events in ASCVD. So that was important to us. It's also worth mentioning that some antiretrovirals can cause endothelial dysfunction and dyslipidemia, so that was on our mind. But the differential was super broad. The other things we were thinking about were cardiomyopathy. There's been some thought that myocarditis can be caused by HIV invasion of cardiac myocytes. That's a little controversial, but cardiomyopathy has been observed in patients with HIV for a long time. It's possible that it's related to cardiotoxicity of antiretroviral drugs, concomitant substance use disorders with cocaine or amphetamines, or from co-infection with other viruses or opportunistic infections. So that was a possibility just given that shortness of breath on exertion and the more subacute symptoms of not feeling well. But that light switch presentation of being fine one moment and then really in trouble the next made us think of other etiologies like arrhythmias. There's a higher risk of QTC prolongation and torsades in patients with HIV, even in the absence of QTC prolonging antiretroviral therapy. And then, of course, PE was something to think about given that shortness of breath and lightheadedness. And there's a two to tenfold higher risk of venous thromboembolism in HIV compared to the general population. So that was on our minds. But to be honest, what we were really thinking about, what we were most concerned about, given the fevers and his HIV status, was infective endocarditis. I was surprised to learn that it's actually rare in HIV and is almost always associated with concomitant IV drug use, but that wasn't at play for this patient. There's actually no difference, apparently, in the incidence of endocarditis in patients with HIV who don't have substance use disorder compared to the general population. Other things to think about regarding his valve would be sterile degeneration of the prosthesis. He was 10 years out by a prosthetic material. It could calcify and degenerate, lead to this kind of acute decompensation. But it was really hard to resolve that with the fevers that he'd been having, as well as the other constitutional symptoms. And then thinking broadly beyond just the cardiovascular system, putting on our internal medicine hats, we thought about other things, all the opportunistic infections that can come with HIV, pneumonias, 
And then with the solitary kidney history, could he just be volume overloaded from renal dysfunction? So we we had a lot to think about. It was really great to just build out that differential as a team and let that inform the rest of our evaluation. You know, I, I just have to applaud you for that masterful clinical reasoning. It's such a great example for me and, and the audience, how to approach a patient. And we think about core tenets of clinical reasoning. An important part of that is developing a proper problem representation, which is essentially a very deliberate one-liner, right? Which is the epidemiology, who's our patient, the clinical syndrome, what are the symptoms and the overall picture and the duration of the syndrome. And you really define such a beautiful in-depth, comprehensive differential diagnosis based on who our patient is and what are his unique risk factors like HIV. You built that differential diagnosis based on the acuity of his symptoms, and you geared your differential diagnosis based on the syndrome that he's presenting with. So I think just one of the goals that we're really learning to add to our mission statement is to really advance clinical reasoning. And this was just such a pristine example of the kind of thing that we want to learn from and and want to advance uh, on this platform. So thank you. Thank you. It didn't feel very it didn't feel very elegant at the time. We were <laughs> but we tried to be systematic. Simi, I'm very intrigued still and I can't wait to know what you found on his physical exam. Absolutely. The exam was so important in this case. When I met him, he was in real respiratory distress. Tachypnic to the 40s hypoxic requiring 6 liters of oxygen on nasal cannula and tachycardic to the 120s. His blood pressure was normal, 132 over 44, but he just appears so tenuous and so sick. Rounding out the rest of the exam, he had decreased breast sounds at the bases with crackles in both lung fields. He was able to complete full sentences, but it was difficult for him. I was surprised to see that his JVP was actually only eight centimeters. But then on auscultation, we heard a very unsubtle, loud, blowing diastolic murmur throughout the precordium very loud. Fortunately, his extremities were warm and there was no edema. But when we heard that murmur, we couldn't help but go back and look for other signs of AI, which is what we were worried about. So we looked for uvular pulsation, bisphyrians pulsation of his carotids, finger capillary pulsations, pupillary pulsations, and head bobbing. But he didn't have any of that. He just had extremely hyperdynamic bounding peripheral pulses. And then the other things we were looking for were splinter hemorrhages, other stigmata of endocarditis, and we didn't find those either. But getting back to Monica's amazing thoughts on Noonan syndrome, we looked for things like short stature and neg wepping, but he didn't have that as well. So we really were just so struck by how sick he appeared that he looked like he was on the edge, even though he had a normal blood pressure. Wow. His physical exam just gave us so much information. I can probably count on my hands the number of times I've heard a diastolic murmur. And to hear a loud blowing murmur is really quite impressive. And you, you know, discussed it so beautifully. But it's really worrisome for AI and and someone like him who were worried about his prosthetic valve, and in particular prosthetic valve endocarditis, given his fevers, I'm really worried about him and he sounds quite sick. Maria, not to put you on the spot, but could you teach us a little bit about what we would look for on physical exam in a patient with AI? Absolutely, Monica. I would love to. But I think first to put everything into perspective, let's remember that what we're dealing with here is this dynamic of having this new regurgitant flow and how the LV has to accommodate the new extra volume going backwards, as well as to continue to maintain perfusion. So this is what we're going to see reflected in our physical exam findings. 
first of all, we always begin with palpation and we can look for displacement of the PMI because an inferior and lateral displacement of the PMI can tell us if the aortic regurgitation has been there for a while to the point that the LV has become dilated. Then we can proceed with auscultation. And as Simi was saying, the typical AI murmur is a decrescendo early diastolic blowing murmur that is best heard on the left lower external border around the third and fourth intercostal spaces. A quick tip if you're still mastering the art of auscultation is to auscultate at the same time that you're palpating a pulse and any pulse can help you. I usually use the radial and that can help you determine if you're listening to systole or diastole. Another thing that can help in this particular case is do maneuvers that increase the afterload because you increase the volume of the regurgitant flow going backwards to the LV. So you can hear a louder murmur and you can do this by doing things like hand grip. But to keep things interesting, in addition to the typical aortic regurgitation murmur, you can have two additional murmurs in someone with AI. You can have a systolic outflow track murmur that is caused by the increased blood flow through the aortic valve that is usually much softer than the aortic regurgitation murmur. And you can have the famous Austin Flint murmur, which is basically caused by the regurgitant blood flow going across the aortic valve and hitting the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, preventing it from fully opening during diastole. This murmur is usually a low-pitched, mid-to-late diastolic murmur, very similar to the murmur found in mitral stenosis, actually, that is best heard with the bell of the stethoscope at the fifth intercostal space of the left mid-clavicular line and with the patient laying on their left side. There are also other signs described in aortic regurgitation patients, and the most famous semi already mentioned. So you have the bounding carotid pulse that is caused by this rapid systolic rise and also rapid diastolic collapse from the blood going backwards into the heart. And this is seen at the base of the patient's neck, and this is called the Corrigan sign. Then similar to this sign, we have the water hammer pulses, which you can see visually or by palpating of the brachial, radial, or ulnar artery, and also caused by the same thing, rapid systolic rise and rapid diastolic collapse. And then there have been many signs described for aortic regurgitation, but I'll tell you my personal favorites, which are quinkies, which is uh, repeated flushing and blanching of the capillaries in the nail beds. You have the Mousset sign, which is the bobbing of the head that is synchronous with the arterial pulse. And you can have Mueller sign, which is the back and forth pulsation of the uvula. Maria, I kind of wish I was your intern so you could walk me through this at the bedside. That was awesome. And I love that you have your favorite signs. That's about as cardio nerd appropriate as you can get. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Yeah, and you guys just brought this physical exam to life in the initial description, in the assessment of this physical exam, and now with these amazing teaching pearls. It's one of the reasons why I love cardiology. And, and, and Maria, as you explained, like all these findings really tie to this basic principle of aortic regurgitation. And as I was thinking about this episode earlier today, while I was in the cath lab, I was like just looking at the flow of blood in patients when we shot the contrast in the aorta. And we, you could just see because of the pulsations, the, the blood goes, stops, and goes, and stops, and goes. And this patient had normal flow. But you could still see that the whole system works with pulsatile flow. And when you have aortic regurgitation, that's really exacerbated because now you have flow going forward and flow going backwards. And that basically correlates to all these different physical exam findings that we're seeing, except for the Austin Flint murmur. But again, it's still really off of the same basic principles of the pathophys, so really important and really makes physical exam fun, really attacking it 
And the approach to the physical exam for aortic regurgitation also does depend a little bit on the acuity. And when we think about all of these signs, these eponymous signs for aortic regurgitation and the white pulse pressure, they really develop over time as you have left ventricular remodeling in response to aortic regurgitation. But if you have acute aortic regurgitation where this patient's symptomatology and history suggests that this may have developed rather rapidly, the LV is still normal LV with a normal size that hasn't had time to remodel and accept the regurgitant flow and regurgitant blood. And so you have a rapid equalization of pressures that can abruptly stop the degree of aortic regurgitation. And so you may not have the white pulse pressure. You may not have these, I should say, Maria's favorite physical exam signs on exam. And you may not even hear the murmur very well because it can stop so abruptly. So you may have a patient who is acutely in shock from massive acute aortic regurgitation and not hear a murmur. So just things to keep in mind here, thankfully, we have some clues to go off of on the exam. Exactly. So I feel like I did a great job by putting you on the spot, Maria. You crushed it. And that's exactly what I was going to say is that a lot of these findings just may be absent or less prominent when it's so acute. And I think even though there's reassuring signs, which he has by being warm, I think he really still sounds so sick and so tenuous and is hyperventilating and just sounds like he's in some real distress. And the acuity of his presentation really does worry me. So if anything, I'm a little worried that we're not finding all these signs of chronic AI. It makes me really worried that he's having acute AI. And of course, when we think about it, it's really tough to medically manage severe valvular dysfunction, which is what we're all thinking about. So Simi, what did you end up doing next? How did you manage him? Yeah, so I think first thing was, where should this patient go? And because of everything that everyone has said here about the concern for acute AI and and him being young and on the edge, we actually admitted him to the CCU, even though he wasn't intubated or on pressors. And so when we thought about next steps and how to treat this patient, worrying about acute AI in the background, obviously patients with acute AI are at risk for super rapid decompensation. And the treatment, the way out is valve replacement or repair. While waiting for that kind of definitive surgical treatment, you can try to medically stabilize these patients by reducing afterload as much as possible to minimize that backwards flow, that regurgitation, and and thereby improve cardiac output. And you can do this with vasodilators, the kinds of agents we only use in the CCU, which is really great. But an example would be nitroprusside if they have enough room with their systemic blood pressure. And then, of course, if you're thinking about acute AI with some kind of infectious etiology and endocarditis, it's so important in tandem with your medical therapy to start multidisciplinary discussions as soon as possible for these patients. So in this case, as soon as he was admitted and we had a little bit more diagnostic data, which we can go into, we called our cardiac surgery and infectious disease colleagues to discuss next steps. That's fascinating, Simi. What about his labs and his imaging? What did they show? Yeah, so the data is very important in this case. His labs showed an AKI, an acute kidney injury, with a creatinine of 1.6 from a baseline of 1. His high-sensitivity troponin T was elevated. We'd been thinking about coronary disease and ACS to 645, but it immediately downtrended to the 620s and further downtrended after that. His NT-proBNP was elevated to around 8,700. His lactate was surprisingly normal at 1.2. His CRP was extremely elevated to 215 with a minimally elevated ESR of 27. 
And then we had some data on his HIV. We got a viral load, which was undetectable, and a CD4 count, which was 371, more or less where he had been. Blood cultures were drawn immediately on admission. And at least in the first day that we were meeting him, those did not have any growth. A few other pieces of data from his initial evaluation, his EKG just showed sinus tachycardia, which again, just as Monica said, shows how sick this young patient who should have a lot of reserve was. He also had right axis deviation and an interventricular conduction delay that we didn't know how old it was. We didn't have any other EKGs. The other thing we were looking for was PR prolongation, which he did not have. And of course, ST segment changes, T-wave inversions, and he didn't have those either. On his chest x-ray, he had bilateral interstitial edema and small pleural effusions, but there weren't any obvious infiltrates suggestive of pneumocystis pneumonia, for example, which was one of the opportunistic infections on our differential diagnosis. You know, the world is rapidly changing. And if this patient came to us today, of course, for the audience, we would be checking a COVID-19 test. But I'm assuming this patient uh, was pre-COVID. That's a really interesting point that you raised. The patient was actually admitted in the early days of COVID. But you guys remember what that was like at your institutions. We were learning so much so fast. We were testing so few people at that time. And there were so few tests available. So he didn't get one, actually. Yeah, it's just so interesting to reflect on how the approach has changed so dramatically and continues to evolve. I feel like almost week to week, but it's nice to know where he stood in that time period. One thing I'd be interested to know is his neurological exam. And I'm saying that only because I had a few patients that presented similarly, but with their actual presentation was a stroke. That is a great question. And I didn't mention this at the top in our introductions, but I've had an unusual clinical pathway, I used to do neurology. I initially matched in neurology thinking I would do stroke and then liked cardiology so much in my intern year that I ended up switching after doing the first neuro year. And so I'm always looking for any kind of neurologic deficit. And for him, this patient, he had a pristine neurologic exam. Obviously, I didn't test everything. I didn't look at his fundi, but he was able to give a beautiful history He was completely non-focal in terms of his gross motor exam. He was complaining of no other symptoms to indicate that he might have cranial nerve abnormalities or sensory abnormalities. I didn't see him walk just because he he was in such respiratory distress, but we did not have any concern for that when he first presented. That might be the highest high sensitivity CRP I think I've ever seen, 215 maybe making a run for its money. <laughs> yeah, extremely yeah, high. That's pretty high. <laughs> and the high sensitivity troponin is also extremely high. I think, I'm not sure what the reference range is over there, but the high sensitivity re- reference range here is, it's like less than eight or less than 10. It's, it's single to double digits, but this is a triple digit high sensitivity troponin. Exactly. And a young guy. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure we're definitely still keeping everything on the table and thinking about could he have some kind of acute coronary syndrome, especially his clinical picture. And now with the exam and and labs, I think we're really concerned about infective endocarditis causing a potential acute aortic regurgitation presentation. So we thought we would take a step back and take a refresher in how to diagnose infective endocarditis and chat a little bit about the modified DO criteria. So really, it's two major 
clinical criteria that you want to be positive. And in that setting, you're really quite golden. So you're looking for positive blood cultures and an evidence of endocardial involvement by imaging. So we typically start with a transthoracic echocardiogram, but again, the sensitivity for that is not great. And so if you don't see anything or if your clinical suspicion is high enough, it is reasonable to go to a transesophageal echocardiogram immediately, but it is ultimately still mandatory that you get a TEE at some point in your evaluation for prosthetic valve endocarditis. And with the major clinical criteria, the sensitivity is a approximately 80%, but it really, and, and becomes especially important in this case, it can have much lower diagnostic accuracy in early stages and in patients with prosthetic valve endocarditis. And I think one great thing about our imaging program is that we really have all the different modalities and they sit together in the bowels of our hospital. So we have the PET, nuclear side, we have CT, and we have MRI, and they all take up one corner of the room. And so you can walk in and and ask a question and get an opinion from three kind of different experts and specialties, and they all add a little bit of something. Maria, I feel like I just keep picking on you tonight. You were recently on your imaging rotation. Do you want to walk us through the, the kind of options for imaging in this case? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, you were actually very lucky because here our imaging department is huge and keeps growing by the day. And as Monica said, I just spent a few weeks in CT, MRI, and nuclear imaging. And I learned how helpful these techniques can be in diagnosing many cardiovascular problems, even more than I could ever expect it. But in particular for endocarditis, cardiac CT, FDG PET, and radio-label leukocyte SPECT are increasingly being recognized as other alternatives to echo when the diagnosis of endocarditis is not very clear. PET, for example, can help localize inflammation and abscess formation in patients with prosthetic valve endocarditis. In fact, in a recent study that was published in March of this year, 76% of endocarditis cases that were initially categorized as possible endocarditis per the modified Duke criteria were able to be recategorized as definite endocarditis when PET was added as a major criterion. So the inclusion of PET can improve the sensitivity, the positive and the negative predictive value of the modified Dux criteria, which to me is huge. CTA is not great to detect vegetations, but studies have shown that may be comparable or even better than TEE in detecting paravalvular infection, abscess, or pseudoaneurysm. So given all of these new evidence and findings, the European guidelines for endocarditis actually now include imaging findings using CT or PET or SPECT as major criteria for endocarditis if the prosthesis was implanted for more than three months. And this is not to confuse the findings, the inflammation findings with perisurgical inflammation. But Simi, going back to our case, I want to know what type of imaging did our patient get? Yeah, so it, he read the handbook that you guys just laid out. He got a TTE, a transthoracic echo first, and that showed a severely dilated left ventricle. So normally we think of the dimension of the left ventricle at the end of diastole being as high as 58 in men. It was 75 millimeters for him. And systolic dimension was 56 millimeters. And his ejection fraction was low, even with the aortic regurgitation that we were worried about on exam, 35%. The echo showed the severe AI that we were hearing, very large jet. There are lots of ways of quantifying the severity of AI, but the most helpful qualitative sign on 
transthoracic echo, indicating that aortic regurgitation is severe, is holodiastolic flow reversal in the abdominal aorta that you can see by color or spectral Doppler. And he had that. There was no obvious vegetation on this study. And the aortic root size itself looked normal, no obvious thickening. But another really cool finding on this echo, going back to what Amit was saying earlier, was that we saw early closure of the mitral valve. And we actually saw this best on M mode, the squiggly lines in the first few pictures of an echo that most people ignore. And to us, we didn't process this at the time, but in discussing it later, we realized that this actually suggested very high LV and diastolic pressure which we would expect more in acute aortic regurgitation as opposed to chronic aortic regurgitation for all the reasons we already mentioned, you know, when you have more compliant remodeled LV that's able to accept that increase in volume and pressure. And so you might think early mitral valve closure, maybe it's protective. Maybe it prevents that regurgitant jet from going into the pulmonary vasculature and giving you so much pulmonary edema, but it does contribute further to hemodynamic decompensation that we see in acute AI because you just have one other thing that's taking away from your LV filling. So that was the transthoracic. And as Monica said, it's it's usually not enough. It's, it's not sensitive enough. And when you're dealing with a prosthetic valve and the suspicion is so high, you have to proceed to a transesophageal echo. And that's what we did. He got that the next day after admission and late in the day. And in addition to everything we talked about on the transthoracic, it did show independently mobile echo densities in multiple parts of the bioprosthetic valve on the anteriorly oriented leaflet and the aortic side of the bioprosthesis, as well as thickening without clear vegetation on another leaflet and no obvious paravalvular abscess. So it was quite the echo. Wow. I mean, I think that's quite an impressive finding. And one thing that's really interesting is that his LV is severely dilated, which doesn't quite fit with our picture that we were thinking of with acute AI, because you would expect that maybe the LV wouldn't have time to dilate, wouldn't have time to comply. One interesting thing that we thought about when we were discussing the case is in patients who have had prior insult or prior reasons for having a dilated LV, like for example, a patient who has a tachymyopathy, they are for some reason more predisposed to dilating that LV sooner than you might expect in someone who hasn't had prior pathology. So really interesting. But I think even with the fact that his LV looks severely dilated, we have some other really great findings, like the fact that his mitral valve leaflets are closing early in the setting of a really elevated LV-EDP. That suggests that this is very much an acute picture. And so, Simi, how would you manage a patient like this with prosthetic valve endocarditis and really complicated severe AI? Actually, before we go to management, I just want to reflect on this real quick. This is such a helpful and a nuanced read of the echocardiogram, picking up on subtle clues that really help frame and contextualize the acuity and the syndrome that we're dealing with. Just want to reflect a little bit on the elevated troponin here. There are certainly ideologies where you can imagine it can be a shared pathology between the coronary disease and the aortic regurgitation. For instance, if this is a secondary aortic regurgitation from an aortitis that's also affecting the coronary vessels as an arteritis, or if this is an endocarditis, 
with an embolic coronary occlusion, which is something we talked about in a past episode with causes of embolic coronary disease, including direct from the left side or paradoxical from the right side or iatrogenic. But I think the clues to the massively and grossly elevated LVDP can really help understand the troponemia. And so the driving pressure for coronary perfusion is diastolic blood pressure minus LVEDP. And you have a situation where the diastolic blood pressure is relatively low in the 50s, and the LVEDP is massively elevated. And so that differential driving pressure for coronary perfusion is low. And so this patient is probably globally ischemic in this context. Moving forward, more and more concerned about this patient, even though the lactate is not elevated, he's otherwise a relatively healthy patient with a robust physiologic reserve. And these people are essentially fine until they fall off a cliff and they're not fine. So I'm definitely concerned about this patient and I want to hear more. Yes. So Monica had been asking about how to even manage a patient like this. And that is certainly something that we were talking about in the CCU. So as many of us know, the mainstay of treatment for acute severe aortic regurgitation is surgery. When a prosthetic valve is involved, though, you want to make sure that you're also targeting medical management with antibiotics to the microbiology, which really can depend on the age of that prosthetic valve. So an early prosthetic valve endocarditis, which is defined as up to a year following surgery, you see a lot of staphylococcus, fungi, and gram-negative rods. In early native valve endocarditis, it's actually more common to see strep. In late prosthetic valve endocarditis beyond a year post-op, the microbiology is more similar to what you would expect for native valve endocarditis. The most common organisms there would be staph, strep, oral strep bovis, and enterococci. So something like vancomycin is a great initial antibiotic for patients with native valve or late prosthetic valve, and this patient would fit into that. Obviously, you can narrow antibiotics further once you have culture data, if you're lucky enough to have culture data. But it's important to remember that for staph and prosthetic valves, the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology recommend triple therapy with not just oxacillin or vanc, but also gentamicin and rifampin, and that you may need a longer course than for native valve. But again, with that prosthetic material in there, it can be difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to completely eradicate an infection with medical therapy alone. And so in several retrospective series, at least 40 to 50% of these patients will go on to get surgery with an additional 20% being people who would need surgery, but who don't get it because they're not surgical candidates. And so when you need surgery, it's usually for the same reasons and considerations that we think about a native valve endocarditis, heart failure because of a dysfunctional prosthetic valve, destruction to the prosthesis, abscess, some kind of perforated leaflet, uh, fistula. And then, of course, you have to think about how likely it is to, to treat this with medical therapy alone. Is it a resistant organism like fungus? Are the blood cultures persistently positive for over a week? So these are the things we think about. And surgery itself, of course, is not trivial, carries substantial risk. Mortality rates in retrospective series, looking at those patients who did go to the OR, not the patients who were deemed to be not surgical candidates, are around 20 to 30 percent. But it's something we all think about if someone is very sick in heart failure, perishock, or in shock itself. Wow, I'm very impressed, Simi. So I'm dying to know what happened to our patient. So as I mentioned before, he was initially hemodynamically stable, though very sick appearing. We were also worried. Given that blood pressure 132 over 44, we felt like we actually had enough room to at least try nitroprusside. 
So we did that. We started nitroprusside. We started Lasix, diuresing him. And as I mentioned before, we got our infectious disease and cardiac surgery colleagues involved right away. Infectious disease thought his presentation was very consistent with prosthetic valve endocarditis, and they recommended vancomycin to cover staph, ceftriaxone to cover strep, and surgery. Cardiac surgery, though, felt that his surgical risk was really high, prohibitively high, and they explained to us in quite a bit of detail that the type of prosthesis he had was prone to really severe calcification over time, making removal of it and replacement with a new root and valve reimplantation of the coronary arteries extremely complex and high risk. And moreover, what they are worried about is that although he was hemodynamically stable on arrival, he seemed to be bordering on shock with that AKI and the tenuous respiratory status. And they felt like this just really elevated his surgical risk to the point that it wasn't safe to go to the OR. They recognized that it was much less likely, but they they raised the possibility of sterile degeneration of the bioprosthesis, as we were wondering about at the top. So long story short, they were not on board. And we started the patient on vancomycin and ceftriaxone after drawing blood cultures and arranged for that TEE. He got the TEE later in the day. We already went over the results. Following the TEE and the sedation that was required for it, he unfortunately developed flash pulmonary edema. I should say he developed hypoxic respiratory failure that we attributed to flash pulmonary edema, needed to get intubated, and shortly thereafter developed three pressor shock. It's really hard to emphasize how suddenly and dramatically this happened. And of course, this turn for the worse happened in the middle of the night. Our team got together urgently to rediscuss the case with multiple cardiac surgery attendings who all agreed that he continued to have unacceptably high risk for surgical management of this presumed infected bioprosthesis. And at this point, we really felt like our backs were up against the wall. He was getting sicker by the minute, and we were not sure about how to restore hemodynamic stability. When I don't know what a next step might be, I always ask my co-fellows first. So Monica, do you know if there's any evidence for the role of TAVR in this kind of situation? Yeah, Simi, this is a really tough situation. I think like you'd been saying with his Medtronic freestyle valve and aortic prosthesis, they probably had thought, given that he was such a young guy, that he was going to have to have a valve and TAVR at some point. But I'm guessing they weren't anticipating it this soon, and I'm guessing they weren't anticipating it in the setting of endocarditis. And as we all know, TAVR is contraindicated in patients with endocarditis. And in fact, endocarditis is on the list of absolute contraindications from the ESC about use of TAVR. And so other than the obvious concern about having more hardware in an infected space, there really is also the very high risk of development of a paravalvular abscess. And so like you're saying, you're really in a tough spot. Your backs are against the wall. He's crashing and there really aren't many options in what to do for him. And in some ways, it becomes a temporizing measure to say, hey, let's stabilize him. Let's get him through this. So then we can put our heads back together and think about the next steps. There is only one case report of an emergency valve and valve TAVR implantation for endocarditis degeneration that was published this year, but I think actually after our patient was discharged. So our interventional cardiologist might be the first group to have ever put in a TAVR in endocarditis. I don't know if they want to be known for that. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's awesome. So not a ton of evidence, but I imagine at this point, he really, like you were saying, Simi, he doesn't have a lot of options. That was exactly the discussion. And so we did turn to our structural cardiology colleagues and Benny Shaw, who's the director of our cath lab, said almost exactly the same things that you did and ended up offering a high-risk TAVR, valve and valve TAVR, with the notion that urgent structural intervention for his AI would be necessary for survival, that the degree of aortic regurgitation he had was not compatible with life. And if he did survive, became more stable, and still had signs of infection or concern for endocarditis, the surgeons felt like at that point, with more hemodynamic stability, that they would be able to offer an elective redo root and valve. And so there were so many risks to consider in this very high-risk TAVR, such as embolization of any of those vegetations we saw on the echo, sizing issues, given that this wasn't a routine TAVR that we were planning for with a TAVR CT protocol, And then, of course, the concern for renal dysfunction in this patient who already has an AKI and a solitary kidney. But again, with no other path forward, the patient's partner, since the patient was intubated, did consent to pursue the TAVR with intraop sizing via contrast aerotography and the use of a cerebral protection device to try to prevent any kind of events that Dan had been asking about at the beginning. Guys, I just have to recognize that the team, the structural team taking care of this patient decided to do something that must have been extremely uncomfortable from the Monday morning quarterback perspective. You're doing something that is on the list of absolute contraindications, and they're doing it uh, not because they have anything to gain. They're doing it purely because they're doing the best they can to save a life. Uh, And they're doing it uh, after clearly what was a multidisciplinary team discussion with a hard team putting the interests of the patient uh, above all else, making a decision to try to bridge them over to a more definitive intervention. So I just, you know, having been in these sorts of situations, I can just imagine how much uh, sort of like personal and professional risk uh, one's taking in doing something so uncomfortable, but doing it for all the right reasons with uh, the best justification available. Absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that we admire so much as fellows in training about our cath lab and our our interventional and structural cardiology attendings, they're so thoughtful. They're so thoughtful and they really always do want to do just as you said, put the interests of the patient, be they 44 or 84, at the top of the list of priorities. So, you know, it was really impressive to just listen to the discussion. And then after everyone was on board, the plan was executed very quickly. He went to the cath lab first thing in the morning, received a size 29 Sapien 3 valve. And what made us almost fall out of our chairs was the hemodynamics during the case, which Benny Shaw called us to tell us directly. Before they deployed the valve, his LVEDP was 50 millimeters of mercury. And then immediately following deployment of the valve, the LVEDP decreased to 24. It was amazing. Wow. So the coronary perfusion driving pressure increased by 30 millimeters of mercury immediately. Immediately. And I was going to say, you know, just to re- re-emphasize that, if your EDP is 50, and I think his diastolic pressure was like 50, basically. It was like, yeah, 44 to 50, definitely. Yeah, that's like, uh, it's oh my gosh, there is stasis, basically, in this coronary bed. It's unbelievable. But I, I also wanted to point out one other thing with this multi-D team here. This really demonstrates 
this collegiality between your cardiac surgeons and yourselves? Because you had said, okay, this is a surgical fix. But then you went to your surgeons and you're like, this patient needs to go to you. But then they communicated that pulled up because of his prior operation. There's a lot more nuance here. And it's not just, oh, open up the chest, swap out the valve. And they were able to convey that to you. And then you were able to go back to your structural team and say, okay, here's where we're at. How can we go forward? And they were able to do an unconventional thing to, I hope, save this patient's life. And so this like conversation with each other is just so valuable. And oftentimes we'll see, you know, people say, oh, let's say a non-surgeon will be like, yeah, we got to do this or the patient's non-operative because of that. People are sometimes thinking about the other specialty and kind of making assumptions. But the reason why you need a heart team is because everything is so nuanced and you actually need to have these conversations. So I really think that this highlights this beautifully. That's so true. It's really great points that you guys are bringing up and it made it all the more impressive. Not quite as impressive or maybe just as impressive as his post-Taver course, which I have to tell you, it was like magic to see this man after his Taver went to the cath lab in the morning. By the late afternoon to early evening, he was extubated. He was off all pressers and he was just in his bed on his home CPAP hanging out with his partner. He got an echo, a transthoracic echo the following day, and it showed that the valve was well seated. There was no paravalvular leak, but this is an advanced point. It did show a peak gradient of 36 millimeters of mercury and a mean gradient of 19 millimeters of mercury. The dimensionless index in which we compare something called the time velocity integral below the valve and above the valve was 0.24, but that was with a very low time velocity integral below the valve. It was just 14. I think that for us seemed to reflect how sick his left ventricle was. But part of the discussion was his left ventricle, he had this EF of 35%. It was so dilated. How with that kind of ventricle, that kind of VTI, was he able to generate a peak velocity of three across the valve? And so it raised some questions about whether there would be patient prosthesis mismatch, whether there had been some underexpansion of the valve. He certainly wasn't behaving like that at the time, but it was something we thought would have to be followed as he went forward with serial echoes. The infectious workup remained negative, unfortunately. Nothing ever grew from the blood cultures. He also had fungal markers, Coxiella, Bartonella, and Brucella serologies, and those all returned negative. So The ultimate consensus was that this was culture-negative prosthetic valve endocarditis. He did very well for the rest of his hospitalization, and he was discharged with a six-week course of vancomycin and ceftriaxone. Wow. Literally a life-saving intervention. Monica, do you want to, since you picked on me all episode, do you want to now refresh our memory about culture yes. wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> revenge of revenge. I love it. Um, why of course um, so culture negative endocarditis is defined as endocarditis with no definite microbiologic etiology previously the main causes that we typically think of are known as the HASEC organisms, Haemophilus, Cynodobacillus, Cardiobacterium, Iconella, and Kingella. But now with improved culture media, we often grow the HASEC organisms within five days. Or if we don't, we are sometimes able to isolate a small culture that we can then grow on a more specialized media. So 
the true culture negative endocarditis, assuming the antibiotics were not given before cultures were drawn. Like in this case, we were really careful to make sure that we had the blood cultures drawn before giving antibiotics now are most likely caused by fastidious organisms like the Legionella species, Bartonella, Brucella, Coxiella, Mycoplasma, hominis, and fungi. But unfortunately, despite antimicrobial therapy and valve replacement surgery, the overall mortality in culture-negative endocarditis is still very high, most likely because of the time by which it's diagnosed. It's often a late presenter. People often have vague underlying symptoms for some time before really presenting for care because it's such a smoldering condition. And a study done at Mayo Clinic that's not been published yet in terms of in a formal journal, but was presented as an abstract. So hopefully we'll be seeing that soon, where they looked at a cohort of their patients with culture negative endocarditis, showed that the mortality could be as high as 80%, especially in patients with early prosthetic valve endocarditis. Monica, that was such a great rundown of culture negative endocarditis. And I'll just add that I'm so glad that you were on the hot seat uh, (laughs) and having to uh, pronounce all these organisms rather than myself. So... (laughs) Definitely. An, uh, great job, uh, Maria. Well done. And, uh, you know, just uh, thinking back to Samin's awesome teaching earlier when she used this, you know, this patient's demographic problem representation to develop a differential diagnosis, this patient has HIV. Do we, do we know what his CD4 count is and viral load and whether he's been taking his antiretroviral therapy just because it can make such an impact on what kinds of organisms we should anticipate? Absolutely. That was very much on our minds. His viral load was undetectable when he was admitted, and his CD4 count was 371, and that was more or less where he had been. It was not different from his baseline, and he was very adherent patient. That's awesome. And then one cause to consider, so his his surgery was 10 years prior, so it's irrelevant now. There is this well-defined situation of getting mycobacterium chimera infections after having a cardiac surgery. And so if this patient is somebody who's had recent cardiac surgery, maybe his you know aortic valve replacement uh, and uh, aortic root replacement was more recent within the past few months or years, and now he comes in with infectious syndrome, uh, mycobacterium chimera is well-described coming from the heater cooler units of surgical ORs. And uh, that's certainly been an interesting saga in and of itself. That would definitely be worthy of a Cardio Nerds podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we agree. Definitely agree. <laughs> well, I can, I can tell you how he did. It was amazing to see this, but he walked out of the hospital after his TAVR. He completed his course of IV antibiotics and very much returned to normal life, even adding a third French bulldog to the family. And he continues to follow with his infectious disease doctor at the Brigham and his local cardiologist. And at his ID appointment two months after discharge, he was doing very well. No new symptoms, no signs of infection. He got transitioned to suppressive doxycycline and had a repeat echo, transthoracic echo, showing an ejection fraction that was still low, 30%, but some improvement in the size of the LV, speaking to the considerations that Monica was bringing up about how a dilated LV does not preclude an acute valvular issue. So his end diastolic dimension actually went down from the mid-70s to 66. That peak velocity across his new aortic valve also went down a little bit to 2.6 with a peak gradient of 27, mean gradient of 15 compared to 36 and 19 respectively in the hospital. What a spectacular result. Spectacular. And also the pearl about the LV dimensions was so critical. So are you saying that there's no plan for 
definite surgery. You're basically, the patient's going to be monitored and when that time comes, if it comes, they'll go for surgery. Is that exactly, exactly. Yeah. He's doing too well right now for, for surgery to get excited. He actually saw them in follow-up as well. They've continued to be very engaged, which has been helpful and very reassuring just knowing that they're watching him, but he's doing so well that they have no plans to operate. Wow. What a refreshing case. Yeah, surveillance is definitely going to be the way to go here, given how risky surgery would be. And my clinic mentor, Dr. Jaber, always says, when he's trying to decide about surgery, he says, look, if you're feeling well, we can't make you feel better. <laughs> With surgery, we can only make you feel worse. And I'll say that <laughs> doxycycline is such a great medicine. I've heard Reza Manesh, the host of Clinical Problem Solvers and, and a mentor to me and Dan, say that doxycycline for ID specialists is like prednisone for rheumatologists. <laughs> That's so true. One thing we had been discussing when we were talking about the case is what would be the role of doing a PET scan in him now? More of a surveillance to see, because obviously they're monitoring his ESR, his CRP. What role could PET play? And that was, again, goes back to how amazing and fun the imaging department is here, because would we be able to distinguish if he was having any involvement of the aorta, because that was a big concern. And one thing that we didn't really get to look at because we had to focus on the hemodynamics is if it's involving the valve, you would imagine that probably some part of the aorta is involved. And hopefully the prolonged course of antibiotics he got was able to take care of that. But it was definitely a concern and and something that we were thinking about that maybe to do in the future. Absolutely. I think if he even gets the slightest bit sick, if there's a tiny suggestion that he might have recurrent endocarditis. I agree with you, Monica. I think that might be a nice tool to add to any kind of reevaluation. So it sounds like symptomatically he's doing quite well. No chest pain, no shortness of breath, and no, shall I say, malaise. (laughs) Nothing, nothing. He's doing so well. (laughs) Amazing. So the final diagnosis, culture negative endocarditis with acute aortic regurgitation managed quite unconventionally, but thankfully successfully, requiring people to go outside of their comfort zone, but approach it not only as a team, but putting the patient at the center. And I think this just speaks volumes about the sort of resources that you have available to you, the the role models and educators that mentor you, and just the the kind of patient care you guys all take care of. So at this point, we'd love to ask y'all, what were the reasons that made you fall in love with cardiology? And what makes your hearts flutter about training at the Brigham? For me, definitely the reason why I fell in love with cardiology was because of the physiology. As you mentioned many times during the episode, it's just everything just falls together really easily. And it's also such a just a wonderful field that you can choose so many different types of different subspecialties. And there's no way you can't find anything or that you don't love or it's just a wonderful field. Why did the did I fall in love with the Brigham? I think probably the two main reasons why I decided to come here was one, the exceptional trainees that I met during my interview day. And then second, I think this culture of like very diverse, compassionate, state-of-the-art, outstanding patient care. So first the fellows here, the culture of camaraderie is unbelievable. I even noticed before I started. So As you can imagine, I moved during COVID and finding an apartment was not easy because I was living in New York. And two of the second years, actually, and shout out to Josh and Philippe and one of my new co-fellows, Adam, who barely knew me from before, 
help me find a broker. They help me find an apartment. They walk me through the Boston real estate market. They spent hours on the phone with me, helping me with this. So I, I literally got a taste even before I started my fellowship. And in terms of the patient care, I just love it here because we learn how to take care of the relatively common cardiology problems. For example, at our VA clinic, where you see your typical coronary artery disease patients, etc. But we also get the rare genetic diseases that are sent to our main hospital. So for example, literally last week, I was in cardiovascular genetics clinic in the morning with Dr. Ho. And then in the afternoon, I took a shuttle and went to my VA clinic to see my clinic patients. So I really love it here and I'm learning tons. Definitely. No, definitely. As I said before, I had a very unusual clinical path and non-clinical path. I thought from my medical school experience that I had to do stroke. I loved neurology. I loved the exam. It felt like a growth field, so to speak, in terms of how much we don't know, but how much we're discovering. And stroke in particular is starting to move into a very different therapeutic era. But the one problem was that when I did my internship at the Brigham, I had randomly a lot of cardiology rotations assigned to me at the beginning of the year. And it was like finding your soulmate. It just felt like meant to be. And I I went through a few more months. I tried to learn a little bit more about general medicine, see how I felt, but I couldn't ignore that feeling. And what I decided to do was to do that first year of neurology and see how I felt on the other side of things. And I loved neurology even as a resident, but I couldn't get rid of that passion for cardiology. All the things that Maria mentioned, physiology, the imaging, cath, the patient's, was so great. On top of that, for me, with my MD, MBA and my interest in delivery innovation for the healthcare system, I felt like cardiology was a really nice fit, a good laboratory to study problems of healthcare delivery in just because the problems in cardiovascular medicine are so prevalent and, and so high impact. So those reasons really factored heavily into my decision to ultimately switch. And when I did switch, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to short track into cardiology. And part of the draw of the Brigham Cardiology Fellowship for me, I mean, there are many, and and Monica will speak to some as well. But the mentorship here is so outstanding. It's an amazing community at the faculty level, very diverse within the division, but also with a culture of open-mindedness to people like me (laughs) who often feel like black sheep. And so I think you'll hear from our program director, Donna Polk, who despite all the challenges, multiple layers of challenges of running this fellowship during a pandemic about how much she values this mentorship culture. And you'll hear from one of my own mentors, Dale Adler, who's our faculty discussant and my clinic preceptor. He's taught me so much of what I know clinically, but He really cares about my interests, as many of the other faculty do, and has helped guide me towards research projects on virtual medicine and other types of delivery innovation. So all very important. I sense that as a resident, and it's been very nice to experience it as a fellow. And you just, you can't help but feel that no matter who you are, what you're interested in, or what's going on in your life, personally or professionally, that there's someone in the division who can help you and who really cares about you, and you get the sense that they want you to succeed and become the cardiologist you want to be. 
That was great, Simi and Maria. I mean, I think you guys have really stolen the thunder here and, and described so many things that I love about the program. For me, what I love about cardiology, in addition to being South Asian and obviously having an invested interest in it, is really the the hemodynamics and really getting to be in a field where we just have so much data and so much information, I think. And it's only really become more highlighted and obvious to me throughout my first year where you get to understand the pathophysiology from cath, from echo, and tying it all together and geeking out over an echo and saying, why don't we calculate the stroke volume and and the cardiac output from the echo and, you know, let's correlate that with the cath and Obviously, you don't have to do that, but it's just, it's so incredible the the resources that we have and how much fun it is to take care of these people. If you come interview with us, there's this fun icebreaker that we do for our interview dinner now on Zoom, where it's a trivia question. And one of them is a number of mechanical support devices that we use in our CCU. And it is, it's a lot. <laughs> and it's really, you're just getting to work with so much different levels of acuity and and working with devices and and really understanding that. So I could digress about how much I've absolutely loved the clinical program here. But my reason for choosing Brigham was my interest in basic science, which I mentioned earlier. And I've loved being in lab and I love balancing my time with great clinical care and then being able to answer questions in lab. And so when I first got here on my interview day, I was just absolutely in awe of the amazing research and discovery that's happening throughout Brigham. And now going through the process of choosing a research lab, which has been a little tough with COVID and and Zoom interviews or kind of Zoom calls, but it's really just been eye-opening to see like just how much excellent research is happening and the types of research that are happening. And it really is in some ways an embarrassment of riches. And it has been just so exciting to speak with people about the incredible research that we're doing. I feel like I could just go on and on about all the things I, I loved about the program and how much I've grown since being here. This is great. Samin, Monica, Maria, this was an unbelievable treat for us. Just reflecting on all the things we talked about, like the approach to chronic and acute aortic regurgitation, aortopathies, cardiovascular effects of HIV, appreciation for echo and within AR, and appreciation for the nuances of acute and chronic findings that we could find on echo, multimodality imaging for endocarditis, multi-D, fantastic teamwork. You just did so by inspiring us with how much you love cardiology and just love the whole topic. You really brought out such amazing, deliberate clinical reasoning with your initial approach and complex reasoning with management and did so in such a humanizing way. I feel like I, I really feel like I'm closing my eyes and walking the dog with your patient. That's how connected I feel to this patient and this case. <laughs> and I literally have goosebumps. And as I say this, and Amit and I have been chatting the whole time on the side, just how excited we are. This is really exactly what we envisioned for this series. And so we are just so grateful for you to be here today and take time of your busy schedules to educate us and inspire us. So thanks, guys. Thank you for having us. And I just want to say that if you guys would like to know more about our fellowship program, just follow us on Twitter at Brigham Fellows. That link will be in the blog, guys. Link will be in the show blog. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It really was super fun. We learned a lot from each other. We learned a lot from you guys and we love the podcast. So it was a real, it was an honor. We're so happy we could do it. We usually welcome you all to the Cardi Nerds family, but you guys are just born Cardi Nerds. This is great. Thank you. (laughs) We really are. (laughs) Say it loud, say it proud. 
And now for the ECPR, we welcome Dr. Dale Adler, who is one of the best clinicians in our division and the executive vice chair of medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. My clinic preceptor, an amazing doctor and an amazing teacher. Thank you very much for asking me to comment on this case. First, I think that Simi and Monica and Maria really dissected this extremely well and thought about all the key things you would want to think about. Uh, And quite frankly, I'm very proud of them for thinking it through like this. I'm going to touch on a few things, and it may be a hair repetitive because people already touched on many of the highlights. I think the genetics are interesting whenever you have somebody this age who had ongoing dilatation of the aorta. You say, what's going on? Our genetics, unfortunately, are disappointing, where it's only 15% of the time, 20% of the time. Our highest yield, of course, is in people who have some family history, where maybe we can then stretch it to 60 or 70 or 80%. But I think, as was pointed out, it's always changing. So the 21 genes that are in an aortic genetic panel now are not the same things that were there before. And what's important to remember, not all of those have been proven. So many of them are speculative. I think the comment on Noonan's is wise because you would wonder about it because of the kidney process. If you say, oh, kidney, that sounds like Turner's, but it's a male, so we think of Noonan's. And the genes related to Noonan are pretty pretty new, and so that probably might be worth looking over. And even though he didn't have a web neck, it looked like some of the people that you characteristically think are Noonan's, we're learning much more about those genes. I think the exam is very interesting. There's fever, which, of course, makes you think something infectious is going on and it's acute. There's a profound tachycardia, which tells you, okay, part of that is fever, and part of it is what kind of cardiac output are you able to mount? So if it's a poor forward output, obviously the heart rate's going to have to go faster to keep up with the vasodilatation associated with the fever. And then the pulse pressure is very striking, where the diastolic pressure is 44, and with severe aortic insufficiency, and you know the left ventricular and diastolic pressure is going to be very, very high, you know there's very little room for perfusion. But what's interesting is the systolic pressure is low. It's it's 130. And if you think of a chronic AI process, these are people with a big stroke volume. And then that comes to his echo. So yes, there's very severe aortic insufficiency, Yes, we think there's an acute part to it where there's actually pre-closure of the mitral valve, but it's a poor-looking LV, and it's not squeezing very well, and it makes us wonder, what was the real recovery after the last surgery? So was this somebody who had AI long enough, dilate, we're told the EF may have been 45%, were there a lot of scars that were already built up? Usually we expect people to recover, so that part is just a little bit odd to us. The initial EKG, pretty striking because it's that conduction delay. And then we say, did that have something to do with why the LV never recovered? Even It's a right superior axis, but it looks for all the world like a left bundle. At times, the septum looks like it's paradoxical. Maybe some chronic AI plus that, maybe that had something to do with it. I think the freestyle valve is an interesting part of this. They were very popular in the late 1990s, uh, started in Toronto. Great result, great hemodynamic effect, 
we would do echocardiograms and say, look at that, there's no gradient. But unfortunately, they turned out to degenerate. And we have to keep that in mind as we look at this kind of case. Then, feeling that this person was too ill because his LV was poor and his troponin was always a problem, his left ventricular endostatic pressure was very high, as young as he is, that the surgeons felt too risky to take him. And that's something you could always debate. But the decision to do a TAVR, first in a freestyle valve, where we don't know so much about what it's going to be like, and then second in the setting of presumed endocarditis, very bold, and I give our interventional team uh, a great deal of credit, Dr. Shah, uh, superb at doing these kinds of things and also not afraid to take something on. I think looking at the films of the TAVR, clearly there was expansion. It looked like they were pretty close to the coronaries in terms of coronary height, and obviously there was no choice. And then one of the things we just don't know with a freestyle valve is how much room is there to shove parts of the old valve, especially if there's an infection, against the sidewalls and get in a new valve. And that probably leads us to the end where we say the LV still looks pretty poor, very dilated, only a hair better. And then we have this very low time velocity integral, 14, below the valve at the end. And then we have a little more gradient across the valve than we wanted. And so we understand the low time velocity integral. Why there's a little more gradient with a large prosthesis, we're not sure, but it would certainly make us look to see, is this fully expanded? Four-dimensional CT would be very helpful. And then last, one of the things that's interesting is looking at the evolution of his EKGs, where he spends a little time with some real concordance laterally and then very striking ST elevation in lead AVR that we almost never see with a left bundle. And it just makes us wonder, was there some shower down the coronaries temporarily uh, at the time? So overall, I think it just demonstrates that our fellows really know how to dissect the case beautifully. I think it represents the fact that we have interventional teams that are not afraid to take on anything. And I think it represents the fact that you really need to follow people very closely. And this is one who needs to be followed very carefully because we're not quite sure where this is going to go if there's was only valve degeneration or if this is endocarditis that we've tucked away for a while. But I thank you very much for allowing me to see the case and comment. And now, a message from our wonderful program director, a fierce role model to all of us, and a passionate education advocate, Donna Polk. Hi, my name is Donna Polk. I'm the program director for the cardiovascular medicine program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. We thank you for joining our amazing fellows today to listen to a great case and discussion. I want to spend a couple minutes telling you about our program. Our mission is really to train the next generation of leaders in cardiovascular medicine. And our goals are really to provide superior clinical training, as you heard from our fellows, to provide a rich and diverse research opportunities, and to provide you mentorship from a variety of well-known faculty members to help you figure out who your mentorship group will be that will help you gather the tools you need and to launch a successful career in academic cardiology. And we do that by having you do the first two years with intense clinical rotations. And that's your chance to really dig in and to see the variety of patient populations in the several hospitals that you get a chance to work within. 
We are focused on your education. We've developed a, a curriculum where every Friday morning from 7 to 10 is carved out time for the fellows to really learn and to dive in and do everything from fellows report to EKG conferences to journal club. We do theme-based days. A few weeks ago, we did mitral regurgitation, and Pat O'Gara did a lecture. Ping Sun then did the echo findings. And then Bobby Padero, one of our cardiac pathologists, took us through all the different specimens and really showed all the the physical findings. Um, And so that the fellows really were able to put together the pathophysiology, the imaging, and the the whole of the disease process as you start to learn the bits and pieces of uh, cardiology. And once you finish those two years, then we transition you into the research portion, and that's covered through the division and several institutional T32 grants. So it really allows you the time to explore whether you're going to do basic translational clinical trials, a clinician educator, innovation, whatever it is that you want to do. That's the period of time that really allows you to gather those tools to be able to collect enough information and data and, and, and skill set to be able to transition to your first faculty position, or if you want to do advanced training, some additional advanced training. So that's the time that, that we work to help you develop your mentors, develop your mentorship group that will help you with each of those transitions. So it's a wonderful program, really highlighted by amazing fellows. I think that they are really what we're the most proud of. They're a group that inspires us and um, inspires each other and pushes each other and really are the most creative and innovative individuals that I've ever had the opportunity to work with through my career and really just want to have fun and learn and take great care of patients and to really become the next group of, of academic leaders in cardiology. So thanks for joining all of us today and we wish you the best. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardiNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardiNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Maria can clearly handle this. (laughs) Although you literally just put her on the spot. Yes, exactly. I love love when people do that. Not to put you on the spot, but But in front of thousands of listeners to this podcast, 